Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host in New York. And today I am speaking to Dr. Susie Orbach, author of the book, In Therapy, The Unfolding Story. Susie Orbach is a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, writer, and social critic. She's a co-founder of the Women's Therapy Center of London, a former Guardian columnist and visiting professor at the London School of Economics, and the author of a number of books, including What Do Women Want with Louise Aichenbaum, On Eating, Hunger Strike, The Impossibility of Sex, Bodies, which won the Women in Psychology Prize, and the international bestseller, Fat is a Feminist Issue, issue pardon, which has sold well over a million copies and been continuously in print in the UK. The New York Times said, quote, she's probably the most famous psychotherapist to have set up couch in Britain since Sigmund Freud, end quote. She lives in, lives in London and lectures extensively worldwide. Welcome, Susie, to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So you are a psychotherapist as well as a psychoanalyst. What's the difference? Well, to a large extent, I find these comparisons invidious. But I think if you think and work from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, that the generic term psychotherapist may not be sufficiently inclusive. But it means that I think about unconscious processes. I think a lot about the therapy relationship. I think about myself within the therapy and I see myself as an inheritor of the of the Freud tradition, although I wouldn't say I practice in that way because we're very, very much further on. But I think what he opened up, the, the possibility of trying to understand and um, reach people was is a profound aspect of the psychoanalytic endeavor. And within the psychoanalytic tradition, do you practice from a particular orientation? Well, I think it's quite hard to say because um, I suppose within the American context, it would be relational, the relational school, of which I was, uh, I think, a founder member in the sense of when it went public. Um, I think part of the work that Louise Eichenbaum and I did was to try to understand how the individual comes to have the psychic structure it does from the perspective of where they're raised geographically in class terms in relation to issues of uh, gender and ethnicity. So all of those things are folded into an understanding of what it means to be an individual and how one's individuality and subjectivity is expressed as a result of the particular ways in which the family, which is the culture we grow up in, uh, is internalized. So I think that accords with a lot of the relational school and also to some extent with people coming out of white. And 
I suppose that you're also paying a lot of attention to how the culture outside of the family seems to shape the individual psyche. Am I hearing you right? Well, I don't think it's possible to see, in a way, I don't even know that the culture outside can be distinguished from the culture inside because we all grow up within culture and the first culture the first cultural is the family and the mother is is the is the representative of culture herself whatever her her position within it she's she's not outside of culture so yes of course it's the outside but the outside forms the inside and then the in, inside forms the outside if that makes sense sure sure so because in a minute we're going to be talking about the book and talking about all all the work that takes place in your office, our listeners might be wondering where exactly you practice and what kind of people you typically see. Right. So I practice, which is from home, which is quite an English sort of a thing that therapists and um, counselors and analysts have offices at home. And uh, I see a cross section of, of ages of uh, class backgrounds and of, of ethnicities. And most of the people I would say are English, American, maybe first or second generation here. But then there are people who've been here forever. I, and I, I think the youngest person I see is in her 20s and the oldest is in her mid-70s. And I see men and women and couples and um, I do some consulting for organizations outside of my consulting room, if that makes sense. Sure. So can you explain the content of this particular book? It, it reads kind of like a play. Uh, yes. So I'm wondering if you might tell our listeners uh, what they, what, how it's structured and where the content comes from. Well, I've, part of what I've been doing in my writing is to take, or to try to find a way to share not just the insights of the consulting room, but the feel of the consulting room uh, to a wider public. And I've had lots of different endeavors. This is a, a sort of long explanation for how I got to this particular um, project. Uh, so that in Impossibility of Sex, I did imagine stories, but told from the analyst's perspective, with the analyst being based on a kind of idealized version of me. In this case, uh, I made a series of programs for our flagship radio program here. And um, my director and producer chose some actors and who they briefed, principally the director, Ian Rickson, um, briefed the actors. And they came in playing characters, and I didn't know anything about them. So I might have said, for example, give me a 60-year-old trade unionist who's had uh, two failed marriages, or I'd like uh, a couple who are on the brink of parenthood but are having difficulties, or um, a mother-daughter relationship, or um, somebody who um, is having an affair. I, uh, that was all I said. And they, the, 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 the actors were briefed and they then came into the consulting room. Hang on, I've got problems here with my, with my earpiece. Um, the, the actors then came into the consulting room. In, in, in the next room was set up a recording studio and we recorded for 20 minutes and cut it down to 15 for, broad, for, for broadcast on the radio. 
And what the book is about or what the book illustrates is, is not just the dialogue between me and the client, patient, and Alizon, but also my ruminations about what was going on, uh, why I might have made that intervention, why I thought what I said wasn't that helpful, or what I missed, or, or expanding a theoretical point. And um, it, what was very interesting is it's a very new kind of form for British radio, and two million people listened live, which is a lot in a country of only 50 million. And then another million downloaded it within the week. Um, so the book was a desire to not just meet that audience, but to give them a little more texture so that on top of the feeling of what goes on in the therapy room, they might know a little bit about what the therapist was thinking and feeling. I want to spend a moment on this because I have to say, I've never heard of anything like this. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's brilliant. So to recap, the these are scenes that were inspired by, I guess, prototypes of patients that you wrote. Not really. And, I think, oh, not really. I think, not really, because here's the thing. In order to make it, to have the, the intensity of a therapy session, I had to be on alert in a way. The, the director didn't just have to prep his actors, but he had to create scenarios that I wouldn't know about that I would have to pretend that we were in session 15 or whatever, session two or maybe. So he would have to create drama to throw, so that the patient would, would throw at me so that I could act in a, in a way that brought liveliness to it. Um, so it was completely unscripted. No scenarios were anything that I gave them. They, they created them with the director, and then they just presented in, in the room. And, yes, it, I think it was the only way to get something, because I couldn't use real people. So it was the only way to get that tension and excitement and also sometimes the dullness and difficulties that occur as, as you're sitting together with somebody. And did it work? I mean... Well, I think it works really well. I mean, there's (laughs) there's one session, I think, which is a, well, there's a couple of sessions that I think are problematic, and that's interesting in and of themselves. There's one session where the woman comes in, her name's Jo, and she claims that I've given her the wrong address and she's late, and then her phone goes off in the session, and it's a whole (laughs) sequence of things that would drive me crazy as a therapist which did indeed drive me crazy. And then finally I have to say to her, I'm sorry I can't see you because she then reveals that she's come to me via a friend of hers and I don't see people who are interconnected in that way. So it, so I think it's a, an ex, expression of the, the holding the frustration and the disappointment and um, sometimes the difficulty of of, of of showing somebody that you can't see them while, sh- while perhaps picking up on how this might replicate something about her feeling she's not understood or not looked after or not cared for. So that was one kind of difficulty that came up. Another one was there's a, a, a another scenario, and the um, actor in this case 
kind of couldn't get anywhere and I couldn't get anywhere. And I thought, well, that's actually very truthful to certain sessions. You know, we, and I, I think of that chapter as being, or that play, as being about befuddlement and, and the difficulty and um, what else can I say about it? The sort of frustration of sitting and not really being able to help in the immediate sense, but just holding those thoughts. I, I, I can see now how it would work because I know from college when I took some acting classes that the number one rule of improv, and these, these scenes were improvised, as you're telling us, the number one rule is the rule of yes. You, you go with whatever the actors bring. And I, I, I guess in a scene like the one you're describing, in a scenario like the one you're describing, you didn't have the choice to say, oh, well, this isn't working. Can we try it again? the rule was that this is like a real therapy session and, and you had to work with it. And sure enough, that is how it is in real life, isn't it? Exactly. And I think the thing is therapy isn't a spectator sport. So the fact that a lot of them work as um, in, in ways that I think are very satisfying dramatically is, is really interesting. Um, and the fact that uh, I think it's Natalie who I feel in the befuddlement, I think, okay, so that is the truth of it. It's just like when I wrote Impossibility of Sex, I wrote about um, one of the stories I created was a therapy that fails because I think it's quite important to um, represent therapy, not as, gee whiz, this can always help you, but it's got its, it's, it's, got its strengths, but it's also got its pitfalls. So... Uh, I want to get to individual stories, but not before really honing in on this point, which is to really clarify then what it is that you're hoping to share with the world about psychotherapy. What are you trying to teach readers or have them, or maybe what myths are you trying to dispel by portraying therapy through this kind of vehicle? That's a very good question. I think I wasn't sure that I was trying to dispel any myths, but I think I was without even realizing it, that the, the idea of the, of the therapist um, telling the patient and ha- interpreting to them um, and being that kind of extra authority and guru. I think I was, that's so not how I see therapy because I see it's much more a collaborative venture. So I think that was, but one piece thing I was wanting to show. The other is that, um, to show how the curiosity that a therapist has towards the person or people they're working with begins to open up a curiosity in the mind of the of the person or people they're working with, so that you're you're sh- you're showing something unfolding. And the third thing, I suppose, is that like any practice of um, any literary or artistic endeavor, you're trying to reach the places that aren't reached in normal social intercourse. And in that sense, the pauses and the reflections and the things that might seem quite mad in an ordinary conversation carry a weight and um, a valence that can be useful. So I think it was really showing that this is a very, it's a deep practice. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of feeling. and. Um, it's enormously interesting <laughs> as well as I'm right. helpful. <laughs> and, and, and maybe trying to show people that it's not so instrumental. It's, it's not like one shows up with a problem and expects an immediate resolution. 
but that maybe it's about a kind of process and yes, a kind I of that, curiosity. I things, yeah, I think those, you know, those words don't mean anything to people outside of therapy, the words that you said. That's absolutely the case. We understand what we mean by non-instrumental in a process, but there's nothing like demonstrating the what looks like a meandering conversation, which doesn't quite fit any of the rules of conversation because you don't necessarily go back and forth and there's no reassurance in, in a simple way. Um, but yes, that you're, you're looking at a different <clears throat> territory. You're looking at a different, I don't know, if, if there's a big wave and then there's the slow wave, you're kind of in the middle of the wave. So suddenly that image came to me. You know, you're... Um, you're deconstructing, but you're doing it in a way that offers language and mood and um, sensibility, whether it's forceful or soft or all, all in between, so that some kind of new way of being can be established for that person and with you in the room. I want to talk about a concept that comes up a few times in the book. And it's the concept of parsing, parsing mm -hmm. one's emotion, parsing mm -hmm. one's experience. I'm thinking of the case of Douglas. It, it comes up a few times there. Can you explain this concept for our listeners? Well, I, I, I think with Douglas, who is a lawyer who comes to see me, um, he's a judge, actually, and he's got a case of sex trafficking going on. And... He's a very, he comes in and says, I'm in so much difficulty. I'm so angry. I'm going to blow this case. And then the, um, the defense will be able to wriggle out of the, the charges because I, I'm so angry. I'm in danger of um, doing something wrong in the court. You mean he's presiding and, over a case in which someone is being accused of sex trafficking? Yes. And uh, okay. sorry, I should have been clear about that. Anyway, he, uh, it, uh, what's very obvious to me when Douglas comes in, and he is a superb actor, I don't know if you've seen The Crown, but he's in The Crown. Um, all of these actors are fabulous, including Nomi, who's right on the American stage right now in Harry Potter playing, um, this is Harriet, who's playing the, uh, the you know, um, Hermione in, in Harry Potter. Anyway, um, so Douglas comes in, and it's very obvious that he – it's obvious to me as a therapist, I think it would be obvious to you as a therapist, that something is not being expressed, and his trope, his way of managing life when he's has difficulty is to be angry. And I don't know what the difficulty is, and I don't know whether it's vulnerability or confusion or intellectual um, uh, – feeling of inadequacy there. I don't know what it is, but it seems to me that there's feelings that are not being expressed um, and are being siphoned or funneled into anger, to rage, which is terrifying him. So I'm interested in why he's so terrified of the anger. But And I ask him if he could think about parsing his emotions. Now, what I mean by that, and I think we have a conversation about it in the middle of the of the record of, of of the recording, so to speak, is that I say, you know, like in in school, you'll learn what's a verb, and and what's, um, what's a, a 
a colon and a semicolon. In other words, you learn all the different parts of speech, but you don't have that kind of fluidity or capacity with your affects. And what I'd like to do is blow into your feelings, set some air so that we can actually deconstruct and see what the different aspects of your feelings are. And that's that's what I mean by parsing it. Because I my theory, and I don't think this is, I'm exceptional, is that if he could allow himself to have the feeling behind the feeling he's having or the feelings behind the feelings he's having, he he would be situating himself inside of himself in a very different way and he'd be less frightened and less rageful he and as as the story goes on we we learn about his shame and his vulnerability and his feelings of not being sufficiently grown up and so on does that explain it sure as it so the theory goes that one emotion can become pretty predominant in the the container or, or the representative for all the other, for the total experience, which has other strands to it that are not really being recognized. And I know this might sound sort of like it should be obvious for some people might be listening to this and thinking, well, but why, why get into all those other emotions? That's just going to make the experience more painful more difficult what what's useful about realizing yeah i think what's useful about it is that if you're if you keep being angry let's say in in douglas's case and it's not the right emotion it's just what we would call a defense against more uh, painful feelings is it doesn't get digested it doesn't work through it's just there ready uh for repetition all the time, when you feel frightened or you feel nervous or you feel lonely or you feel confused, but you don't have access to uh, the ownership of those feelings, you don't acknowledge them inside of yourself, You they, they, they turn faster than the speed of light into anger, then you don't get to metabolize any of those other feelings and therefore you are limited in your relation to self and in your relation to others. You, you're not actually full up with yourself. You're full up with something that is, what can I say? Um, you're full up with something that makes you, makes you smaller than you are rather than bigger and richer than you are. It isn't really sustainable. So, it, yes, having a little bit of pain or a lot of pain, feeling sorrow, feeling grief, feeling frightened, feeling... Um, vulnerability is I think therapists really know that that, those kinds of feelings (coughs) once engaged with are paradoxically quite nourishing they expand our relation to self and they make it possible for us to hear others and not project all the time onto them and not be so frightened of who we are and in Douglas's case maybe handle things better because he does come to you with a certain kind of problem and a wish for some kind of suggestion, or it, it seems that way, like he's presiding over this case. He's very afraid that he's going to mess it up with his um, with his emotion, with, with the anger that overtakes him. And it seems to me from reading the material, like he really wants you or thinks that he wants you to tell him how he should proceed because this really could mess up his 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 career and, and his standing as a judge. 
And you don't exactly tell him what to do, do you? I don't, but I think everybody comes in wanting us to fix things, right? It's just that our methodology <laughs> is the anti-fix fix, if you like, uh, <laughs> because, of course, we don't dismiss what the person is uh, yearning for or what they're frightened of. We are very responsive to that. We just have a sideways way of going about it. And what um, I hope the reader will see is that by Douglas risking feelings about his own vulnerability, he is able then to find a different way of doing his summing up, which will, instead of put his fury on the trafficker, will actually allow him to have empathy for the trafficked women. And he will be working from that position. I, I want to move on to the case of Amelia and Grace, which is a mother-daughter yeah. couple. Amelia is the mother, Grace is the daughter. And briefly, it seems the problem is that Amelia is finding Grace to be quite unruly and their relationship to be quite more distant than it used to be. She says they were very close before. And this is happening apparently in the context of Amelia's husband, Grace's father, being absent for the past eight months or so. I, I bring up this case because we see a lot of, of your particular style and how you work. You're not a silent, neutral analyst in the sense of never guiding the patient in a particular direction of inquiry. You take the you do take the wheel at times and focus your inquiry on specific things. So I'm wondering if you can explain to us your style of working and how it shows in this case. Oh, gosh, I, you're probably better at figuring that out than I am because I'm just <laughs> doing it. I, the mother comes in in an emergency. From, any, from the point of view of an outsider, I think everybody would think the mother was, I'm going to use a non-technical use of the word, she's neurotic. She's, she really doesn't give her daughter any space to be a teenager. That, that, that's, it does come off that way, yeah. Uh, she really did play it that way. The daughter comes in as highly reasonable um, and a bit chippy, as we would say in England. I don't know if that word means, means anything to you. She's sort of, uh, what the hell can I use as a word for chippy? She's, she's provocative, but, but not in a nasty way at all. Um, the, what surprised me, and I think this is, again, because this is a play, really, or not a play, but because it's an improvisation, I'm absolutely shocked that the mother thought that her daughter taking her earrings or her um, a camisole was an insult, as opposed to what a deep pleasure that a mother, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously over-identified the other way. I would have thought, you know, when my daughter took my things, I was, I was thrilled, right? I saw that as just such a lovely thing that could happen. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm definitely thinking to mother, you need to back off because you are about to lose your daughter if you don't do something. So in, you're right, I'm directive and I'm pretty directive with Grace because I want to, I want her to take up a bit more responsibility for her own behavior, which seems very adolescent, which is appropriate because she is adolescent. But what, what emerges is that she actually has feels very rejected in her family. The things that interest her, like she's a very good writer, um, she's 
very restricted at home. She's not allowed to hang out with the kids after school. And so she's she's quite constrained actually with her um, with how how limiting her 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 mum is and and so I suppose maybe my directions are you're going to have to fight for yourself Grace in order to you're going to have to clear a space where you do some of the grown up stuff because she's already told me that she's her mother's mother so like do it in your own interest not in your mother's interest is what I'm saying to her so it is you're right it's but I can't tell you what I'm doing. You know what I'm doing because you're a therapist listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what it's—I mean, what it seems like to me is that in order for you to be able to to know or, or to suggest a particular direction, requires that you have a pretty solid sense of what the problem is or or where the knot is, where it is that they're getting tangled up, or where they're misfiring. Is that the case? Well, I think I could see it from both points of view. As I could see how awful it was for to be rejected as a mother. I think that is so painful, and to have put so much into your daughter, and to have thought that you would have a very different relationship, and indeed have a very different relationship than the familiar relationship you grew up in. So the knot for her is well. I'm bewildered. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't, you know, she's just insisting this should not be happening. So the knot for her was to, to for her to accept, yeah, it is happening and there are things you could do about it because in essence you've raised a lovely young woman. So I think my knot was don't stay in your own box. See if, try and open this up a bit and actually be interested in what your daughter has to say instead of ordering her around or being so frightened of her behaviours. Um, and I think Grace's not is difficult because she wants something very much from her mum, but she doesn't, she doesn't have a way of articulating what it is either because she's just so into differentiating, she's so into pushing her away that she doesn't know, know how to connect either. So I think it was obvious where the knots were, um, in those three fifteen minutes, so perhaps that's why I was so directive. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> now, this is a good opportunity to make a point about how couples therapy or family therapy or any therapy with more than one person, how it works. Because I think a lot of people agree to a therapy like this with the fantasy that the therapist is going to somehow referee or adjudicate the matter and either say you're right. Or this other person is right, but that's that's not at all what you're doing. And I should mention for context, uh, for the reader, for the listener, that you you meet with each person individually first, and then meet with them all together. And if you're not adjudicating, what are you doing? Well, first of all, the reason I'm meeting with them individually is because the mother has requested the appointment, and I don't know what it's about until I know what it's about. And I don't know whether she's actually got a kid who's walking around slicing her arms and covered in tattoos and sleeping with everybody and stoned all the time. I have no idea. So I feel I need to see this daughter uh, to make some kind of an assessment. Now, 
I've had m- mothers and daughters come in together for the for, for initially. So that's not it's it doesn't it's it doesn't always follow a pattern. And I don't with a couple see them individually. I I, I know Esther Perel does, but I don't. Um, I would see them together because I'm interested in what happens together. And I also I can't manage any secrets. I don't want secrets. There's something that I'm told that I don't don't reveal. So I, if I'm going to see the couple, I would usually like to see the couple as a couple. But in this case, it's not how it was presented to me. So that's how it happened. I want to also bring up the case, the case of Natalie. Yeah. Because with with Amelia and Grace, I found that you stayed pretty near to what they were talking about. There were possible off ramps you could have taken, and you didn't. Mm. You know, like concerning the absent father, or maybe more about. Uh, Amelia's history with Natalie as your so this is this is a a woman who's having an affair on her husband you're as you're talking to her you bring up her secretly remaining on the pill while she and her husband have agreed to try for a baby that's that's not something that at least in the material we see Natalie bringing up herself so we see you maybe a, a specific move in a specific in the direction of something that she hasn't brought to the table. And I'm wondering why that move in that moment. Good God. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> um, That's a good answer. Uh, and I don't know if I didn't know that. And I just invented it because uh, in a way I'm having to improvise too. I mean, yeah. Um, but it somehow it came to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to look at the text um, sure. to make absolutely sure that you're right. You, you read it more closely than I did, so um, or more recently. But it seemed to me that what I was trying to help her understand is that she had made there was a breach in her relationship with her the the, the husband, um, and that. Once you make a breach, i.e. she didn't tell him about the pill, that she's then, there's a whole part of her that is removed from the relationship. And that's what, what my argument was, that's what made it possible for her to be in this affair. Um, so the affair didn't come out of nothing. It came out of distancing herself by not being able to share with her husband her unreadiness to have a baby and her fear of who she is. And she's the one with the befuddlement. I mean, we're very befuddled in the session. Um, And it's partly because there's a kind of dull, depressed aspect to her. Very, I think she's very disappointed in who she is at the moment. She's, she turned from a very racy teenager to going to church and being a very, very good girl. And she's left the piece of her racy teenager out, which I think, of course, is being expressed between the not taking the pill and having the affair. And we're trying to integrate that, but we're nowhere near that that yet. But I'm not really answering your question about why I bought in Mm -hmm. the the pill, but I suppose I needed a prehistory. I don't know. You know what? That's actually a great opportunity for us to – to talk about how how it works in in the moment, live it in the moment when you're 
a therapist because some people might think that we are working sort of top down from a certain kind of theory or set of assumptions about how things work, how humans work, and then applying it across individual cases. But what does it mean that in any given moment, you might not ahead of time know why you're doing something and might only know why you did it afterwards? Do you think, do you think that that's sort of by design how therapy works? I think, I think how the therapy that we do works does, does, is exactly like that. Um, of course, I think we all do have theory inside of us that we work from because otherwise we wouldn't, our utterances would come from nowhere, right? They, they do, they, they do, and, and the, the times we hold the silence or we suggest direction A versus pick up something, um, of course we've got theory. But if I'm thinking theory in a session, I don't mean in an initial session when I might be making an assessment, but if I'm thinking theory in a session, I think I'm really... I'm, I'm not understanding something. I'm not present enough. I'm not getting something. And um, you're maybe grasping, I'm grasping in the wrong direction. I'm, I'm not necessarily in the wrong direction. I'm looking for something to help me, right, rather than stay right. in my confusion. Um, and I think, I think for all of us, if we're very alive in the therapy, we are, there's little things that surprise us. Uh, they can surprise us negatively. They can surprise us in a delightful manner. They can surprise us by making us take stock. Like if we take the story of John, he makes a revelation in his first session, which absolutely floored me. And I came out from the recording and I was ready to murder the director, absolutely ready to murder him because I hadn't expected what had come up. But that is the that is what happens to us in therapy is that people say things to us that really throw us off and we have to find a way to hold the equilibrium, manage what we've received, think about it, feel it, let it go through us and still, and stay present all through that. I think we're all dying to know what did John tell you? Well, he declared his love and his sexual love too. And it, I really was. I, For you. I, yeah, and I had to think: How the hell do I not humiliate him? How do I, how do I, how do I just let this be and receive it without rejecting in a way that's going to cut whatever this is about? <laughs> and he's absolutely relentless, frankly, about it. I mean, he just pushes and pushes and pushes, and I can tell you, it's an incredibly uncomfortable. 18 minutes of recording. And, and, but it's just like uncomfortable sessions that all therapists have had. And I think the thing you're trying to speak to is the importance of, I guess, in holding a certain attitude, a certain readiness for, for surprise, for, for things that are like a preparedness to be thrown a to be disrupted, to be is that thrown. what you're speaking to? Yes, I think that's part of it, but also to be able to hold that with respect for the person mm. and, frankly, quite a bit of love, really, and tenderness so that you don't retaliate as, as you might in normal life if somebody does stuff that you find difficult, offensive, um, 
or confusing, right? You, you, you have to, it is absolutely a therapeutic muscle that we develop, which is an attitude of um, openness. And I'm going to use the word again, curiosity towards them and towards the way in which what they're saying affects you. And, and that's, I think, the hallmark of, of good therapy or absolutely critical because- piece of it. Right. And, and because of that, you seem like someone who proceeds in whatever direction or order the patient needs or the work needs, rather than trying to cover a standard set of topics and history, you know, in the spirit yeah. of doing like a traditional intake. But I'm thinking of lots of younger therapists who feel pressured to do more of the latter, more of the following a certain kind of protocol, because that's what insurance and managed care want. And these are forces that have become quite strong in the field. I think more so for younger therapists who are just starting to open their practices or, or find work. And, and it becomes very hard to practice outside of the influence of those forces. I'm wondering if you deal with managed care or with those kinds of forces in your practice and, or what you would say to therapists who do and who don't feel the freedom to practice in the way that you're in the way that you practice. Well, we, we have a completely different system here. So you either see people within an, an, uh, a facility, you know, and it's free, or you, pri- you work privately. So um, when we started the Women's Therapy Centre, we would always take a history and we would do, I remember Louise and I would always do a sort of three monthly updates on all of the people that we were seeing as a way of, but if I, as a way of making sure we were doing what we thought we were doing, what were the presenting problems? I'm in it, but I think that was the that was being a young therapist actually, and it's a good training. It's important to do, just like process notes are important. But I don't think um, you can always get that. In uh, you can't always get a, a history. I mean, if we think about Douglas, who comes in, the judge we were talking about, he just comes in and he's just he's, he's just he's ready to sort of explode. And if there's no time to say, you know, how old you have, you don't we, how many siblings do you have, and are you, is your mother alive? I mean, there's none of that because you're often ex- you're just dealing with an emergency, and you may get to the history at a certain point, but you don't get it get to it in the way that I think insurers require you to in, in America. And I think there are ways to work around it, which is you have to say to somebody, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to take, a, we're going to have a session in which I learn what this is, and then you have to find a diagnosis that will work, um, and then try and get on with actually delivering that still uh, settled, thoughtful um open stance of the therapist after that. I think that requires though, especially again with younger therapists who are trained in a more results oriented model, it requires sort of silencing that voice that at times has made it into your head as a therapist that, that is demanding results and asking, is this working? Is this helping? How's it helping? How are you going to document that it's helping it? Because what you're, Mm-hmm. What you're encouraging mm-hmm. is a kind of patience that doesn't satisfy those kinds of questions. Am I hearing you right? I think that's absolutely right. I, 
Uh, I have a colleague in Germany who has to write a report after every 30 sessions, I think. Um, so in that case, she's found, she was trained as a psychologist. She find, she's found a way to write her own way of answering those questions, which may not be as honest as what you're talking about, but allows her to get another 30 sessions from the insurance company. Does that make sense? Right. Totally, totally. I, I want to read a, an excerpt, if you don't mind, from near the very end of the book on page 268. And it goes, it goes like this, quote, the specific tells the general. And so it is with psychotherapy. Each story tells us about the individual or couple while, tells us, while it tells us about ourselves. We want to know about other struggles because we want to know more deeply about ourselves and the project of being human. I think that's a beautiful quote. Can you please explain? Uh, I don't even know what the context was. I'd have to go and look it up. But I suppose <laughs> what I'm saying is what, what makes this so compelling, not just for the reader of the book or the listener of the series, but what makes therapy compelling for the individual and what makes therapy compelling for the therapist and I don't think it's any different. It's just a particularly concentrated form of understanding the human subject, which we get in movies and plays, in football, in um, physics. We're very, look, what, what does therapy do? It studies the human subject in their relation to other subjects, right? That is absolutely fascinating and touches us very deeply. Um, and human beings are full of story making. That is what we do. We we have we create symbols. We create stories. We search for understanding. We search for connection. We search for how to be connected and yet be separate in and have a. So that's what I that's what I think is why we listen in. Why we eavesdrop on the bus or why i mean in a way therapists are professional eavesdroppers aren't they except they're also part of the conversation in a um, a very lush way right we're almost out of time before we go can you tell our listeners how how they can hear the actual recordings that this book is based on i think you can go on to www uh, bbc.co.uk radio 4 probably backslash radio 4 and then look up in therapy or you just put Susie or back in therapy radio 4 in and it'll probably bring them up I think I think most of them are there some of them aren't but most of them are there um, and you can download them and you know what I'll make sure to include those a link to those sessions Great. on uh, on the website. What are you where are you working on right now, Susie? Well, my director and I um, are trying to put together a play at the National Theatre. Um, I don't know whether we'll be successful. We've had several uh, open workshops where we've worked with the actors again in improvised fashion. And we've then done it to audiences, small audiences, just 100 people. We're 50 to 100 people. We're now thinking of can we make a play? And um, 
what I should say is that the Douglas, no, it's not Douglas. There's another one. I, I wanted. I want to give you a link to something else. Um, we're thinking more that the play might have the a director telling the actor what to do, so that you get you get a sort of double reveal, if you see what I mean, or a, a double whatever they call that dramatic irony. So I don't know what's going on, but the audience does. But we're just working on it. It's quite hard to do. Frankly, <laughs> that's ambitious. It sounds like fun. Do you enjoy these? I really enjoy it because I, I I love the work of being a therapist, but I also love the work of finding a way to share the yeah. beauty and the magnificence and the intellectual interest and the challenges that we face and finding forms outside of just writing in a popular vein. It, it feels really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we really look forward to hearing about that. The book, again, is called In Therapy, The Unfolding Story, How Conversations with Psychotherapists Really Work with Susie Orbach. Thank you, Susie, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. (laughs) Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.